0: SearchCast, a podcast hosted by Isaacson Miller. My name is Rhett Sosby, and I'm the recruiting manager here at the firm and a producer of this podcast, along with Devin Benjamin, our podcast content manager. I'm pleased to introduce today's host, Jamie Morgan. Jamie Morgan is a managing associate at Isaacson Miller and has been with the firm since 2019. She works on searches across a variety of roles at both public and private higher ed institutions, independent schools in the K-12 space, as well as nonprofit organizations in the Bay Area. Prior to joining IM, Jamie served as an assistant director of undergraduate admissions at Tufts University, where she worked with the alumni interviewing program and held the position of managing editor of all print publications. Our guest today is Dr. Jill Koyama. Vice Dean of the Division of Educational Leadership and Innovation at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. In this role, she sees great opportunity and responsibility to do work that matters, alongside others who are constructing equitable, multivocal, innovative and dynamic learning environments at MLFTC, and more broadly at ASU. Prior to ASU, Jill was the Director of Educational Leadership and Policy director of the Education Policy Center, and director of the Institute for LGBT Studies at the University of Arizona. We're thrilled to have you, Jill. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jamie.
1: Great. Thanks so much, Rhett and Jill. We're thrilled to have you on the podcast. It's been wonderful getting to know you over the last few years. So excited to have this conversation. And We'll just dive in. Um, So thinking about your career in higher ed, it's really spanned community colleges and universities, New York, Washington, and Arizona. Wondering if you can share with us a bit about your journey to higher education.
2: Of course, I'm I'm happy to. I think uh, inherently I'm just driven by curiosity and a a sense of wonder and doing things and creating things and maybe even breaking some things. Um, And I think that comes from being an only child. So I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and both of my grandfathers had that same curiosity, that wonder to, to, to learn. Um, my Japanese grandfather was, a, I would call him a community activist in his own way. Uh, after the internment, after the war, he started a judo dojo uh, for the community. And then my other grandfather was a self-trained engineer and house builder. So I spent a lot of time with them uh, and I liked seeing how they figured out how things work and how they did a lot of stuff by themselves, but then they would include other people when they didn't necessarily you know, have all the skills or knowledge. I wouldn't have called it that back then when they didn't know what they were doing. Um, but I knew that I also wanted to explore my curiosities in more formal learning spaces. I wasn't sure that it was going to be the academy. In fact, I didn't think it was going to be. Um, but I was also an only child and an only child, and only child in an immigrant family. So even though I was Yonsei, or I am Yonsei, fourth generation Japanese American, I knew that I would go to college. It was a given. And so I'm a first gen college student, and I knew that I was expected to do something that would serve people. And that's kind of the only requirements my family had. I'm sure they wanted me to become a doctor, but the more useful kind, not the kind I am. They probably wanted me to be a medical doctor, uh, but they were very, very supportive of whatever I was doing. Um, So having said all that as a background, my path to higher education was really a very circuitous wandering path. I got a bachelor's of science in botany uh, and then worked as an ethnobotanist for a bit. Uh, I then became very interested in how people learn. So I, uh, earned a master's in multicultural education, all at the University of Washington. And then I finally went to get my PhD when I was uh, early 40s, I, th- I think, late late 30s, uh, in anthropology and education. and So it took me many years uh, to complete my degrees and to become an academic. And I think I've always been a rather reluctant academic. And as and, and even though I've had all these roles, uh, and I'm I'm not sure if that's a partially a very imposter syndrome as a first gen woman, woman of color, queer. I'm not sure, uh, or if that's just you know part part of learning who we are and knowing that we actually don't know that much.
1: Jill, I think even though we've gotten to know each other a bit over the last few years, I, I think always hearing that backstory and is really inspiring and where it's brought you today. Um, thinking back on your transition to Arizona State, I'm wondering what initially drew you to the vice dean role, and then what also just drew you to the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College in general?
2: I was so glad that uh, you were asking that question because I had to pause and think, wow, what, what was that? <laughs> so <laughs> I, have to, I have to preface it by saying I was really happy doing the work I was doing at the University of Arizona. I loved that work, in fact. Um, as mentioned in the intro, I was directing the Institute for LGBT Studies. I was very dynamic. I was engaged with the community, uh, being around a lot of young queers because I am not young, and that was really energizing. I had uh, found co-founded and directed the Ed Policy Center, so that was getting some legs. I was leading the Ed Leadership Unit. And we had just recently done two new programs. I kept doing my research, not as much as I wanted to, but with refugee youth and their families, and so I was. I would have said prior to being invited to apply that I was pretty satisfied. I was happy, things things I felt were going well and in the kind of directions I thought I wanted my work to go in. So I'd never really thought about a career, so just like my work. So I was like working class background. I'm like, this is my work and it's going pretty well. And then I have to say that uh, I received an invitation from your firm, reached out, and then three of my friends contacted me and I thought, wow, I had never, ever considered actually making another move. It had been my second institution. And I had never thought of of going into higher administration or to the dean's office. And I can say this now, although you might want to edit it out. I didn't actually know what a vice dean is. Um, so I knew about associate deans and assistant deans. I had never worked somewhere where there was a vice dean. It sounded just uber important and, and maybe above uh, where I saw myself. Um, but <laughs> having, having said that, once I started looking at what was happening at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College, and then more broadly at ASU, and yes, I did read Michael Crow's um, book, and it just made me really excited, and I thought, wow, I want to expand my work with refugee education and do some more policy work. And I don't have that long left in my career, so how am I going to have the kind of impact, potentially? have impact that I want to have if I continue at this rate that I'm working at. And so I realized I needed to be somewhere like the teacher's college that was experienced in working really quickly, transnationally, at scale. So I was really starting to think about what would my work look like if I could do things faster with more support and maybe in a context where if you fail, it's okay just do something again. So I guess that's partly the innovation, um, piece at ASU. And so that made me more interested. Um, I knew that I wanted to have more collaborations and, and more challenges than I did in my current position and all of that has come to pass. So I am almost to my second, finishing up my second year in my Mm -hmm. current position as vice Dean. Um, And I really have gotten to be more engaged with with collaborative partners and and genuine community work. So I'm working with Childhood Education International. and We're developing nano courses. uh, And ultimately, we'll make a credentialed certificate in refugee education that any educator across the world can take. Uh, We are moving that to a WhatsApp platform uh, so people in refugee camps can use it. I'm getting to work with Education Reimagined to create convenings around learner and learning centered education so what does that look like if we base everything upon the learner and their experiential um and their experiences in life what what would education look like then um, another project i'm getting to work on is with native american and indigenous communities in arizona uh, together we're developing and um creating and training community leadership teams that then can influence education. And we're really fortunate that we got a million dollar grant for that. And I think all of that is possible because of ASU and Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. Uh, we we work in what we call a matrix, which makes me laugh because I always think of Keanu Reeves, <laughs> like, you know, bending. And, and in some way that is what we do. But for us, what it means is we have these very... Um, intertwined, integrated support service. So for budgets, for research, for grant writing, all of these people, like you say, I've got this idea. And all these people, it feels like, rush to you and say, okay, what can we do? Uh, And so that's allowed me to do these things as one reason. I think another area that I wanted to work in after having developed uh, co-developed with my colleagues at University of Arizona, two new programs. I thought, what would it look like to, and what what would be the experience of taking existing programs that are quite good, but rethinking them and redesigning them, and offering them differently? Maybe getting out of the three credit units, which we all have taken and know and um, are mostly bored with. Like, what what would that look like, and. um I just, I think I'm at a point that I don't believe graduate education or education, you know, should look like it has looked. I think we need to be changing to better meet, well, definitely the technology, but also, you know, the needs of learners. I don't know if I was graduating from high school right now, if I would want to go to college. I think I would want to do, I don't know, I would want to learn. I would want to do things differently, maybe in smaller bits, maybe through like you know, open, open access. I'm, I'm not sure. I, I think I would not want to join a program. So I've been really fortunate in this new position to be working with our education leadership faculty and staff and students in rethinking, okay, what does one need to be a leader of a school, a principal or a leader of a nonprofit or, or a different community entity. And so it's really been fun work. Uh, it's led by Terry McCoy and Juetta Gonzalez, my colleagues, but they've brought together nearly a hundred people as thought partners to redesign that program. And I think, okay, yes, that's something that absolutely happens at Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. (laughs) Um, And I guess the last thing I I was looking for, although I didn't necessarily know it as a time at the time, I, uh, I, I really wanted to develop my leadership and, and have feedback about it and have support in in doing that. And I really have. So Dean Basil has um, nominated me and I've been able to take two different leadership programs at ASU, uh, launching leadership program and advanced leadership initiative. And it's amazing. And so you're with other aspiring and emerging leaders, you get mentorship, you get training. Uh, I right now have an executive leadership who's a leadership coach who is coaching me. Um, And so I think You know that's something I wanted and definitely gotten, and because of that, I feel like I have a real strong network. You know, I feel like I could call a provost today or uh, a different dean or even a vice president at at ASU and run an idea by them and get feedback. So I don't know if that exactly answers. I didn't. I didn't know I would wanted to go, but when I saw the opportunities that were available, and could see myself there. Then I realized I wanted all these things, and I got very greedy.
1: <laughs> Jill, that that just it gives me so much to react to in such a positive way. I'm I'm so glad to hear about these opportunities that have opened up, and whether that's in kind of your direct work or these executive leadership coaching opportunities, and how you really just kind of taken this this role, which was ambiguous when we were speaking about <laughs> it a little bit, and really running with it, and. That kind of leads me into my next question. You're you're doing so many different things, collaborating with so many different people at ASU, and how how are you striking a balance when it comes to all of these various roles and responsibilities that go into being the vice dean?
2: I like Jamie that you assume that I have balance, That's <laughs> <what> I, <laughs> uh, and I think I, I'm not that skilled at balance. Um, Although I do, I do think over time, you know, what I do strikes some sort of reasonable combination of time and effort. Um, I'm a big planner. So people are saying, you're so planful. And that, that kind of cracks me up um, because it sounds like I'm literally full of plans. Uh, but I'm not. Like, I, I don't have a lot of plans. I always keep plans and projects to a, a, what I think is a manageable minimum. And then I just work on the complexity and depth and timeline of them. Uh, I think uh, balance. I I, I think that, you know, I'm probably best when I can identify, okay, here are my plans and then who needs to come together. And then I found, even though I, I think I was a type A personality, maybe I'm recovering type A, I'm I'm not sure. And I'm an Aries, so I might be recovering from that too, is that I've gotten really comfortable with ambiguity and maybe like a mediated chaos. Like I feel okay if things are really squirrely and really messy, and I'm not sure where they're going to end up. And just bringing people together to share their ideas or expertise, and then revise and revise and revise, um, I, I think helps me feel like, I have if you want to say balance or, or or I feel like I have stability even in that chaos. Um sometimes I wish I was, you know, not so recovered from type A and was more linear uh and maybe a little more OCD, but I see that being more malleable is more in line with ASU and also with my dean and it seems to bring enough success that that I'm gonna I'm going to keep working at it. I mean, I also I, I want to be honest. I, I don't have any kids, I, so I don't have a lot of family, uh, you know, expectations that also people are torn by. Uh, I have a great personal life. I have a great you know family, but it, it's not in the same way one might have with with young children or aging adult parents or family that needs uh, different kinds of supports.
1: Those are all great points. And I think especially how this kind of sort of change in how you attempt to strike balance works really well at ASU and kind of the environment of innovation created there. So, so switching gears a little bit, it's clear from your work previously, your work at ASU, that you're a true champion for equity, inclusion, anti-racism, and social justice. So, what is your approach when it comes to engaging meaningfully in this work? And then, maybe how has your approach changed over time?
2: Yes, um, it's funny. I have a, I have a colleague here at a different college at ASU who I met in one of my leadership programs, in fact, uh, and she studies LGBTQ plus representation in the media. And She's very fond of saying, I'm gay all day, and it just cracks me up. And so I could probably say I'm DEI or EDI or DEIB all day and, and probably <laughs> all night. And so what I mean by that is I, I am really fortunate uh, that I can just come to my work as who I am so I'm queer I'm biracial I have you probably don't know this Jamie I have two uh fully tattooed sleeves um some piercing sometimes I even shave my head and do a faux hawk so I pretty much come to work well, so. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's and, and it just I think it's it's a privilege but it, it but it's also right so part of my work is like I, I'm here and I look like this and um I have been supported, if not loved, Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College, and I think that by showing up, I'm not saying I'm representing all of these identities, but by showing up, I think it gives at least students uh, some notion of, oh, I could do that. Um, I'm, I'm often in a store, off in a store, and I have short sleeves on. <laughs> it's very funny. Parents will often drag their like high school kids up to me and say, "What kind of job do you have? Tell my daughter she shouldn't get." Tattoos because what kind of job do you have? <laughs> it, just, it just makes me laugh because I say, I'm vice dean at age. Right. <laughs> and, they, and they're like, you know, they're like, ah, clearly I didn't help their cause. But I also explained that I did not start getting tattoos until I was already um, well on my way to tenure. So, and and I started in a way that I could always, you know, put, cover them up. So, anyway, that, so that, that's kind of just a, how I live, I guess, DEI. Um, but I also see getting, you know, sometimes when we think of uh, diversity, equity and inclusion or belonging, uh, that people think about it in admissions, of course, right? And, and now with the Supreme Court, it's right. very much, on, the decisions very much on our mind. How does race, ethnicity, uh, linguistic uh, differently, abilities, how does that play in, mm-hmm. right, to admission? So people can see it there. People also see it, um, I think in hiring, Right? We need to diversify our faculty. We need to look at all candidates. We need to um, market and and post our job openings in places where people of color and cutie pop people read them. So there, I think people are quite aware, right? Um, and it, certainly people are aware in, in an, another way with all the anti-critical race theory discourse. But I think that for me, I try and see... Uh, DEI and EDI, just just like kind of in every decision I make.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so one area, an example would be like budgets. You know, this can seem super mundane and monotonous and bureaucratic and transactional, but it's really, I see them as opportunities for putting values into play, right? So through a budget, I can literally dedicate funding support to particular things that I think uh, support like EDI and DEI. Um, I also think how we talk in meetings. I always make sure that I have my pronouns up on my Zoom screen. I will never walk into a room and say, hey, guys, if it's, it's a seemingly mixed gender, right? Um, I will tend always to err on, I don't really know your gender. I don't make assumptions about who people are or how they identify um, themselves. And so I aim to always give space for people to share as much as they want. Not that that becomes the sole focus of any meeting, but uh, I think getting to know people and who they are, I think, and then seeing them and, and recognizing is all part of DEI work. It's just kind of the smaller stuff. Uh, and then, you know, people make missteps. I make missteps. And I think when people make missteps, it's okay to point it out. If someone misgenders someone, I think it's okay to say something to them, probably privately afterward. Um, But I think that it's good to always recognize that those things happen and to address them, not in a punitive way, because I'm not, you know, I'm not the DEI police, but uh, to bring it to their attention, as other people have brought it to mine, so that's that's I guess how I go about the the work of it. Over time, what has changed is I actually realize we all make mistakes, and I am less uh, tethered to always being right about it. I am less defensive. I think <laughs> um, I am less ready to to jump to judgment. Uh, about someone or to correct someone in a way that makes them feel bad while simultaneously, like, I just won't put up with it. Like, I don't need and can't tolerate racist, homophobic, misogynist, ableist kind of behaviors. Um, and I think everyone who works with me knows that.
1: hmm Great. Well, thank you for all of that, Jill. Um, switching gears once again, um, a core value of the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College and really ASU is around principled innovation. So can you share with us and the listeners what this means to ASU, what this means to you as a member of the Teachers College and how you and the college have implemented it into things like academic programs, strategic initiatives, and even engagement with the communities you serve?
2: Yeah. So principled innovation was, it was new to me um, when I was in during the search, of course, I started looking up uh, things about it because it seems to be a core principle for Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College. And I think uh, if you ask most people, um, they'll say that it, it's a framework, right? It's, it's a way of bounding the work we do. To me, it, it has served on a personal level in a little different way that I'll explain. But I also see it as a bit more than just a framework. So... It is, and I'll try and give some details that might make sense. It's an intentional, very purposeful way of engaging with people and ideas and issues in a respectful way. Um, PI is what we call it, was actually developed in our college uh, by a, a fabulous, creative, thoughtful team led by Christy Gullison, And they really started to massage and work with the ideas, and what would that look like, and what could we do with it, and um, where where would that show up? Just as you're saying, how does that show up in in curricular um, activities, and how does that show up in partnerships? Um, And because of their work, it really became embedded in everything we do as administrators, faculty, students, staff, community partners. Um, In the last year the broader ASU has now adopted principled innovation as one of our nine design aspirations. And so along with our charter, which is, you know, that we should be measured by who we include, not who we exclude, and also their success, principled innovation, along with the other design aspirations, undergirds everything we're, we're doing, or, or it should. And it, and it just allows us to, I guess, you know, we talked about be innovative, right? To uh, imagine new things and really accelerate new ideas and form new solutions and maybe even find different problems and all of this in very ethical and, and inclusive ways. Um, principle of innovation, it revolves around four main components or what are called character assets. Uh, that's uh, PI wording, not mine, but um, those are moral, civic, intellectual and performance and all of this is all of these emerge and and are enacted through collaboration and learning and critical reflection so they're not static right they're all part of these very dynamic uh contexts and systems and so I guess what that what for me what one of the things that Christy and, and her group had created is a uh, a deck of cards i don't know if you have one i should send some to you the yeah. principal innovation deck of cards and so it has cards from each of the four character assets right so, so they're kind of like the suits in a regular vegas deck okay right so like moral you know i'm just going to make this up but moral is going to be like the hearts <laughs> right Civic so is going to be the diamonds and um on each card there are two questions and one question is about the individual, so a more reflective uh, ask. And the other, anyway, how I interpret it is more for the community. Okay. So the first day that I worked at the college, I would randomly pull out a card and I would read it, I would think about it, and I would let it guide my int- intentions and actions for that day. And it really helped me get grounded. I'm not I'm not sure that is you know, one of the objectives, but for me personally. Um, But it also helped me understand the the, the culture and climate of the college Mm -hmm. and to feel a part of it. Like in some way, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, we share this same lexicon now, even though, you know, I was I was very new and it allowed me to approach everything. So, again, if we go back to talking about program redesign, I approached it in every meeting with the principal innovation ideas in mind. And in fact, we have incorporated principled innovation into one of our partnerships with the largest school district um, in Arizona. And we actually teach PI to leadership groups. And we use it to guide all of our discussions, our activities, our intentions, uh, our partnership building. And we are also using it in the uh, project with the Native American and indigenous communities, the CLIC, collaborative, Uh, Leadership in Indigenous Communities Project that I had previously mentioned. So we're using it because it's such a good foundation and it resonates with other cultural ways of knowing, right? So Indigenous and uh, Native American communities certainly have important, uh, deeply rooted to the land and to to the water and and to the community ways, ways of knowing and being and interacting. And so PI is kind of that for us, right? And uh, I'm really glad you actually asked me about it. I, I probably know so much less than so many people <laughs> at issue. And yet, even in talking about it, I, I feel that it is in some way a part of the work that I do.
1: That's great. And I definitely would love to see that deck of cards that you were uh, referring to. I'm to
2: send you a deck of cards.
1: <laughs> great. And my last question for you, Jill, is do you have any advice for those hoping to follow in your footsteps and pursue work that addresses social disparities and creates equitable learning environments? Oh. <laughs>
2: I'm so afraid to suggest anyone following my footsteps. <laughs> um, Uh, You know, I've been a a bit rogue and um, I haven't necessarily done things in the order one should do them or anything. (laughs) I I joke now, actually, like all my advisees and doctoral advisees and even junior faculty, like I will give they will ask my advice and I will give it to them and they will do exactly the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) And I think, yeah, that was me. So um, maybe they are following me. Uh, so I think some things have served me well, though, that, that might be, might be useful. Um, so I started out in leadership growth, like as an interim director of a trio program at the, at the community college that mm-hmm. you, you first mentioned. And so it was temporal, but it's kind of like trying it out, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and i had worked in the program, so I thought I understood it. And then I just started doing those small steps. So I became a coordinator of doctoral programs at SUNY at Buffalo, and then I became a unit coordinator. And so with each thing, I was just taking what I was learning and to use the education word and scaffolding on and doing the next thing. And and that for me works. So I guess those exactly are footsteps. I would take just a step you know, right. not a leap. Um, and I think from the outside, it likely looked, and some of my friends would say that I take risks. But to me, I feel like they're very measured, um, very stepwise. Um, risks. And so that's worked really well for me. And it's allowed me to build, I think, is is a strong leadership portfolio and experience, um, which helps me create the equitable learning environments. Uh, I also think I don't know i I would recommend although when i started thinking about this it's very difficult i think especially for many women and women of color including me that that we don't take our failures too personally but Mm -hmm. but the flip side of that is that we don't take our successes too personally either and i think i've learned this like everything is contextual and historical and has time components and so we do the work as well and strategize as well as we can and sometimes that leads to a huge grant and other times that leads to like half of the faculty like being upset with me. And, and I can't take, you know, either of those as some statement about who I am as a person, or even the work I do. I, I, as I said before, I, you know, I make stakes, and I'm happy to apologize for that. And then then I have some wins. But not taking it personally, has taken me probably a decade uh, to, to accept that. And then I, I shouldn't, you know completely disavow the personal because then there's some things i do that i should take personal so some missteps um one thing that that has also helped me that i think anyone want to go on a particular journey um in the academy is Or or elsewhere, too, is, you know, mentorship. So people talk about mentorship, and I used to make a lot of fun of it, I want to say, because I felt it was all very constructed, not very organic, and why would you put two people together, and they don't even know if they like to have coffee together. But (laughs) I think it's really important uh, to have, you know, productive and, and maybe not so productive experiences on either side of mentorship right to see what works and see what doesn't and I have had those uh but I I would just say I encourage everyone you know find your people
0: Mm -hmm. um and
2: find your places and you just find those people who will love and support you and also will really push you and just tell you you're full of it when you are full of it um and some of these I like to have you know some of course in the academy and and some at ASU um but then I like to have some people who who are not because, like, it's not important to me necessarily that they understand what I do as much as who I am. And right. I'm really, really fortunate that I have people. I mean, I really am super privileged. I have people who have supported me my entire life,
1: mm-hmm. friends,
2: family, um, partners. And I, and I just I think that is so important to anything that we try and do. So I don't know if that's following in my footsteps, but. I think for me, that seems to have worked today, up to today.
1: Great. Well, it's been really wonderful to to hear your reflections and your work at ASU and kind of hear an update on how things are going. So thank you so much. And with that, I will turn it back over to Rhett.
0: Thank you both for that conversation and thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We would love for you to subscribe to this podcast so that you can catch up on our old episodes as well as be the first to hear new ones. And we'd also invite you to visit imsearch.com for more information or follow Isaacson Miller on our socials LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Isaacson Miller. Isaacson Miller's podcast content provides general information only and does not constitute recruiting guidance or advice. No representations or warranties are made with respect to the accuracy or completeness of this content. All liability from the use or misuse of Isaacson Miller's content is hereby expressly disclaimed. The content contained in our podcasts should be used only at your own risk.